at the moment. Would you mind calling back later on today? They are the lords of Hollywood for the most part. And they yield a lot of power. And God forbid you should buck that power. You will immediately be labeled as being anti-Semitic and not part of the crowd, the in crowd. Now that's just the way it is. Hollywood's big lies. Yeah, they're still not back from lunch. Nepotism is hiring someone because they're family. Cronyism is hiring someone because they're friends. Uh, favoritism is hiring someone because, based on some arbitrary factor that you favor. Uh, what would be the reaction of many people in Hollywood today if all of a sudden we said, you know, 60% of the upper management in Hollywood and the top level executives are Christians? What would be the reaction to that? machine that's somehow terraforming the political, economic, and cultural landscape of America. And we see this every day in the movies and nightly news, a continuous assault on traditional values and important principles set forth in the U.S. Constitution. Unfortunately, few of us understand what's happening because those who are paid to inform us are actually paid to keep their mouths shut. For were the anchors or celebrities who work for the networks and studios to make the mainstream media the issue, or were they to say the wrong thing, they would be fired or blacklisted. Given these realities, the documentary you are about to see will probably not be coming to a theater near you. And the reason for this is because we will be pulling back the curtain to see why the mainstream media is indeed the issue. We will now see how Hollywood movies and the New York media create what could be called a restraint of trade in the marketplace of ideas. The marketplace of ideas concept is really one of the underlying principles of our democracy. And the idea is that if we do not restrict the flow of information and ideas that, uh, that are available for a particular discussion of public discourse, some issue that is of importance to, uh, to the country, 
uh, we're more likely to come up with the, the best idea or the truth. Well, restraint of trade actually takes you back to what is the standard of trade. And generally in the history of this country, it's been the concept of the free market, open competition. So therefore, restraint of trade is anything that infringes upon open competition and limits the freedom of the market. This applies to, to the film industry in the sense that uh, to the extent that we narrow the, the availability of ideas, then the film industry in effect is diminishing the, the strength of our democracy. And we will see why the mainstream media promotes the globalist agenda, an agenda that sanctifies free trade, has destroyed the U.S. manufacturing base, bled the American middle class of jobs, corrupted the family unit, tolerated fiat currency, and encourages infringement of the Second Amendment so completely, we the people are increasingly subject to the very terror the mainstream media helps generate every evening on the nightly news. The agenda is to build what they like to call a new world order. The new world order is world government based on the model of collectivism. In its essence, collectivism is a political and social system. It's the kind of system that Adolf Hitler had in mind, that Lenin had in mind, Stalin and Mao Zedong. So the globalist agenda, in my view, is not a good thing. It's an agenda for world enslavement. But before we get into these issues, let's take a quick look at the history of the Hollywood movies. What would grow into radio, television, and cable networks to collectively become the mainstream media? A term that refers to any program that's produced and or distributed by the major studios or networks and seen by a wide audience. The movie industry has a history as rich and intriguing as any of the movies it's ever produced. What's more, America may not have become the great nation it is today without the vision of the Jewish immigrants who established the movie industry. These were the original movie moguls, many of whom started out in Manhattan's Lower East Side and later moved west. Unlike the world they grew up in, the moguls entered an America of robust nuclear families headed by strong fathers, doting neo-Victorian mothers, and happy children. Most Americans were from one-income Christian families that constituted a strong and growing middle class. The American dream was liberty, the freedom to worship God, to raise our families. That was the American dream, and I think over the years, uh, the focus has changed, and I think that the emphasis now on materialism was not the original dream of the Founding Fathers. And quite frankly, I think it's very important that we get back to the uh, original dream of the Founders, which was liberty. Even though the business establishment at turn-of-the-century America was somewhat discriminating, if not anti-Semitic, the movie moguls took the high road. They created their own businesses, including the first Nickelodeons, theaters, and motion picture production companies. The movies they would go on to produce ignored the bad and built on what was good about America. Not only did the moguls want to assimilate, they made movies that got us through the Great Depression and the World Wars. Movies that uplifted us with dance and musicals, hope and visions of prosperity, art deco, romance dreams of a better life and a glorious future.
for the immigrant moguls knew what it was like to go without. And so they worked ever harder to inspire an America to go in style, to have good dads, loving mothers, responsible children, a respect for religion, productivity, innovation, low debt, and a higher standard of living for each generation. The original movies were very, very uh, promotional of a new dream, a new country, a new way of life. They were respectful of traditional values, and they, in many ways, not only promoted the American dream, but established what many people adopted as the American dream. Their wholesome and imaginative black and white movies, TV shows, and nightly news inspired America to become greater than anyone ever dreamed. Unfortunately, not everyone found the mogul's vision uplifting. Thomas Edison, inventor of the motion picture camera, used ruthless collection tactics for royalties on his patents. So much so, he eventually forced the moguls to leave town. And they did, to a sunny suburb of Los Angeles that became known as Hollywood. So you'd have to say they were probably wrong in doing that. But uh, Edison, on the other hand, hired thugs to run after these independent producers, sometimes referred to as the outlaw producers, and uh, beat them up or assault them. And so this is one of the reasons that is sometimes cited as a reason for the founding of Hollywood. They also needed the sunlight because the exposure index of films of the day was very, very low, somewhere around an ASA of something like five or eight, as opposed to today's films, which are at 250 and 500 ASA. So being close to the Mexican border to get away from Edison's patent thugs and having plenty of sunlight and reliable weather out in Hollywood land were the reasons that the movie moguls left New York City and basically set up five movie studios and four mini-majors in the area of Los Angeles. There, far from Edison's patent police, but near the Mexican border, the moguls built an even more glamorous industry than what they had left back east. For what kid hasn't marveled at Hollywood movies? The silver screen with its mind-boggling action adventures and the endearing romances of our favorite stars. And now, a global industry. What nation has not benefited from Hollywood movies? What people have not been able to feel closer to other people, especially when we realize that we are more alike than different? People feel closer to people who they have met, may have never met by virtue of seeing a story about someone they don't know, but, you know, has aspects of their life that matches the life they live. The technology of film uh, and television is just another way of people telling stories to each other. Yes, the movie moguls would go on to present an idealized vision of the American dream and even build an empire of their own. In his book, An Empire of Their Own, Neil Gabler explains how these mostly Jewish immigrants came here. A lot of them had dysfunctional families, bad dads, and they made movies that reflected a more idealized scene, a scene that they would have liked to have seen. And now, a hundred years later, this empire creates thousands of hours of movies and TV shows every year. The production output from hundreds of companies, a cornucopia of human thought now on everyone's fingertips. Unfortunately, this cornucopia is but an illusion. Fifty shades of gray, but little or no color. It seems that we have a cornucopia of media with different views. 
But in reality, in spite of the fact that we've got different networks and different channels and maybe a hundred different options on our television sets, if you look at the viewpoints of the mainstream of those channels anyway, they're all pretty much the same. So it's an illusion that we have a lot of choices. It's the same kind of an illusion when you, when you uh, look at political parties, for example. Uh, it's uh, the feeling that, well, we've got the Republicans or the Democrats here in the United States. And that certainly is a choice, isn't it? And there are choices, of course, on viewpoints on a lot of minor issues, but on the really big issues like American sovereignty, the Federal Reserve System, which is a banking cartel. Those issues are not a point of debate. Uh, or a different point of view at all of these different news channels that we talk about and we think, oh, we've got all of our choices. Yeah, they'll talk about a lot of little things, but the really important issues are not even up for discussion. We have been trying for 10 years to address every outlet of the mainstream media has received our DVD, our petition calling for a new investigation with 2,500 architects and engineers but we don't get any reporting from that. As we will more fully explore, certain issues, subjects, stories, and whole populations are now ignored, invalidated, vilified, and defamed every time we turn on a TV or watch a movie. In fact, from our teens to our 40s, the Hollywood movies now indoctrinate us with all manner of violence and propaganda. And then, from our 40s onward, the New York media riddles us with a narrow spectrum of anti-constitutional liberal news from almost every outlet. Let's take a look at the structure of the mainstream media and shed some light on why this happened, how it restricts our speech, and how it promotes a globalist agenda that's destroyed the American dream. Yes, unfortunately he's filming, so we wouldn't be able to do it within the next month. Today's mainstream media is comprised of hundreds, if not thousands, of media companies. These media companies are engaged in the production of motion pictures, news broadcasts, TV programs, documentaries, and advertisements. As mentioned, one would think this cornucopia of media companies would be delivering a cornucopia of diverse news, entertainment, information, and ideas. After all, these media companies are peppered across the nation from coast to coast. Unfortunately, as widespread as they are, almost all of them are owned by basically six multinational corporations, what's known as conglomerates. A conglomerate involves a situation in which one corporation will own a number of other corporations in different areas of economic activity, but they would all be controlled by the head of the conglomerate. These conglomerates are Comcast, Disney, Sony, Time Warner, 21st Century Fox, and Viacom. So, rather than having hundreds of independent media companies across the nation, we essentially have just six. Collectively, the six conglomerates thus control almost all of the programming in the United States. Over the last uh, 50 years, there's been a tremendous consolidation of the mass media. It's gone from over 100 companies to six major companies. In the process, these companies have started to overlook major items of news, especially when it respects or has an application to their financial well-being. Shows like The History Channel, Good Morning America, Colbert Report, Face the Nation, The O'Reilly Factor, Morning Joe, Meet the Press, 
Fareed Zakaria, Rachel Maddow, and Barbara Walters special are all financed, produced, and or distributed by the conglomerates. But the crowning jewel for each of the six conglomerates is their ownership of one of the six major movie studios. The term major Hollywood movie studio is a very large corporation usually, which makes a lot of motion pictures and employs a great number of people in all disciplines of the movie-making process. These studios are known as the MPAA Studios, and they are Universal Studios, The Walt Disney Company, Sony Pictures, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and Paramount Pictures. There are independent studios. There are very productive studios in North Carolina, for instance. Uh, there are studios all over the country, in Arizona and whatnot, where movies are shot. But the MPAA, the big studios, are members of the Motion Picture Association, and they are primarily in Hollywood. These six Hollywood-based movie studios produce and or distribute movies watched by about 95% of the viewing public. And most of this audience is comprised of young people. If you add up that market share, it'll come close to 90% uh, on, in any given year. And then I, I suppose the major studio distributors weren't satisfied with just approaching 90%. So almost all of them either bought or created wholly owned subsidiaries that uh, engage in competing with the independents for the lower budget films, you know, things below 20 million. And if you add them all up together, you're getting up to 95% or so each year for the market share of the major studios and their wholly owned subsidiaries. At the same time, older Americans are treated to the homogenized output of just six New York-based news networks. We all know them as CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. This is where we, the voters, get 95% of our news. Given this state of affairs, the savvy citizen may ask, how has such a small group of corporations been able to dominate the entire mainstream media? And the answer is the few have control over large quantities of money. They have control over credit. Uh, they have control over banking, money issue, as a matter of fact. And we're talking now about the banking fraternity. And if you look on the boards of directors of the great media corporations, you see an interlock with banking institutions. So money is the answer to the question. And a long time ago, they decided that to control the thinking of the population, it was necessary to take over and control the media. Let's consult some more history. Previously, we saw that Hollywood was founded by a small group of European immigrants who wanted a better life for all. These movie moguls numbered only about 20, but they founded five major studios and four mini-major studios between 1912 and 1935. The original major studios that were formed in Hollywood were Paramount Pictures, RKL, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Warner Brothers, and 20th Century Fox. Believe it or not, Universal Studios used to be considered a mini-major. So the mini-majors were Universal Studios, United Artists, and Columbia Pictures. There were also some minor studios, and those minor studios were Disney, Monogram, and Republic. With the formation of these studios, Hollywood grew and prospered beyond imagination. 
Back East, Edison produced a series of short, mediocre films. The Great Train Robbery in 1903 was possibly the only exception. As competition on both coasts continued, Edison sent his patent police west in an attempt to shut down the Hollywood moguls for movie camera theft. However, by 1915, when Edison's production company went bankrupt, audiences were loving Hollywood movies so much, nothing ever came of the patent lawsuits. The independent producers eventually sued the Edison Trust, or Edison, and prevailed in the courts, and so therefore got their freedom to go and continue to use their uh, movie-making equipment without uh, having to pay license fees to him because he went overboard in engaging thugs to uh, collect his money. And as the studios prospered, actors, writers, filmmakers, and people from every vocation flocked into Hollywood to get a job in the talkies. And they did. It was the studio system, a vast industrial complex of vertically integrated motion picture production, distribution, and exhibition entities. The studio system was basically a factory for motion pictures. It was put together by the original movie moguls, and they built a dream factory, whereby they created an assembly line type process of making motion pictures. Hundreds of them a year, each studio, and the appetite across the country was insatiable. As glamorous as the film business may seem to many people, the studio system is a business. And these studios are run with precision and they're power-based, not unlike Wall Street or any other big, they are corporations. So the studio system, for instance, when I was placed under contract at 20th Century Fox, I was a member of a family, a proud member, and they did go to extreme lengths to keep us happy. The studio system ensured that all the actors, writers, directors, producers were pretty much employed from picture to picture, so they were able to focus on their art rather than on money in the odd hot system like we have today. By the mid-1930s, the studio system had spawned over 17,000 movie theaters across the nation. And 60 million of the nation's 130 million people went to the movies every week. It was the golden age of Hollywood. Yes, even millionaires like Joseph Kennedy and Howard Hughes caught the movie bug. Everyone wanted to produce movies and tell their unique stories. And many great stories were told. The 1930s alone produced All Quiet on the Western Front, King Kong, Mutiny on the Bounty, Modern Times, Snow White, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind. To me, a director is only as good as the story he has, and only as good as the talent he has in front of the, in front of the cameras. What shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a But just as it seemed Hollywood's flame could blaze no brighter, Politicians in the Eastern establishment, possibly encouraged by a spiteful Edison, hit the movie moguls with a series of blows. So I just checked into his schedule, and unfortunately, it's just not something that we'll be able to accommodate at this time. Known as the Paramount case, the first blow was in 1938, when the Justice Department sued the five major studios and ordered them to stop block booking and blind bidding. The basic idea of the Paramount case was that the big studios were engaged in monopolistic practices uh, involving distribution of films, 
involving control over theaters. And what the Supreme Court was looking into was the set of practices that the studios were engaged in. Were these practices creating monopolies or were they tending to create monopolies? Block booking is forcing theater owners to buy packages of movies containing mediocre films in order to get the hit films. Block booking is really no different than what we have today called bundling. In other words, they bundle cable with internet, with telephone, and they call it bundle. Now, maybe you're not forced to take all three of those things, but 50 channels and you really only want one cable channel or five cable channels, and yet you're forced to take all these other ones, you can't pick your channels a la carte in any kind of a competitive manner where the channels would compete with each other. You basically have to take the whole package of channels. If you wanted Gone with the Wind, you had to take Angry Red Planet or a bunch of other movies that you really didn't want to watch. Blind bidding is forcing theaters to buy these same packages sight unseen. The suit was partially resolved in 1940 with a consent decree, which allowed the government to reinstate the suit if the studios didn't comply. Unfortunately, the studios did not comply, and in 1943, the case went back to trial and was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court by 1948. The Supreme Court was looking at the question of whether vertical integration between the producers of movies and the distributors of movies, the exhibitors of movies, if you will, the theaters, were creating a monopoly situation. Here, the High Court affirmed most of the consent decree's terms, but also ordered the movie moguls to sell their theaters. This single action by the U.S. government, known as divestiture, destroyed the Hollywood studio system and thus ended the golden age of Hollywood. Since the studios were never again able to reliably sell their product, they were never again able to reliably contract talented new writers, actors, directors, producers, or production crews with steady employment. Here's a conspiracy theory for you. You know, Mel Gibson would even love this one. Edison and Henry Ford got together and basically either instigated or nursed along the Justice Department's Paramount case. Edison and uh, Ford may have been a little jealous of the movie moguls, and it's a well-known fact that the Eastern establishment was pretty anti-Semitic back in these days. So Edison and Ford may have had something to do with the Justice Department's consent decree. Here is a perfect example of the unintended consequences of government destroying the delicate economy of an entire industry. Free market economists look at the antitrust laws and say the antitrust laws themselves are an attempt to limit free market activity in an unjustifiable way from an economic point of view. The movie moguls had their theaters, their showrooms, chopped off in the name of the evils of vertical integration. Edison and Ford, on the other hand, still had their showrooms for their products, their record players and automobiles. Even though the 1940s saw some great movies, Philadelphia Story, Fantasia, Grapes of Wrath, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, It's a Wonderful Life, 12 O'Clock High, the Hollywood studios were headed for still more icebergs.
After World War II, television burst upon the scene, and by 1950, this new invention fostered a serious drop in movie ticket sales. Television took a lot of people out of theaters and left them sitting at home watching television. Uh, the feature film, you know, uh, was still the bailiwick of the, the film of the theater. Uh, but after the, the introduction of television, um, there were less uh, short films and other, uh, you know, non-feature works that were done uh, in Hollywood to be exhibited in theaters. The movie moguls reacted by circling the wagons and initiating massive liquidations. First, they sold off their priceless collections of props and wardrobes from 50 years of movies that had changed Americans forever. Then they sold off their real estate. Back lots were movies like Sunset Boulevard, High Noon, White Christmas, Oklahoma, Bridge on the River Kwai, and Ben-Hur were filmed. Add to these sad events the escalating massive unemployment due to the breakup of the studio system and Hollywood talent, staff, and crews were desperate. Eventually, the stars realized they could survive better if they were not under contract to any particular studio. Thus was born the star system, a tough, brutal system where talent fees escalated into the millions and the studios suffered even more. So suddenly the stars, instead of being loyal to any given studio, were free agents. They were basically hired guns. They go from studio to studio, picture to picture, and their agents would basically negotiate for them. In essence, we had the business community injecting itself into the creative community because if you have agents sitting there basically screening out potential screenplays, then you've got business people screening out the creativity of the thousands of writers all across the country. Now that creates oftentimes a lot of friction between the creators, the writers, directors, makeup artists, producers, actors, and the business people, if you will, because business and creativity, business and art don't really go hand in hand. It was only a matter of time before the moguls had to turn to outside financial help. At this time, we can't say yes. You could try calling back later on this year and see what the status is then. In Hollywood parlance, an outsider is a wealthy individual or business entity that is attracted to the glitz and glamour of the movie business and wants to participate. At first, individual outsiders like Kirk Kerkorian, Lawrence Gordon, Dino De Laurentiis, Marvin Davis, Ted Turner, and Rupert Murdoch came to Hollywood to seek their fortune as producers. Well, there's a long history of, of wealthy individuals, usually, or very talented individuals coming from all over the world, and certainly the United States, to Hollywood seeking fame and fortune. And these include people like D.W. Griffith, who was an early uh, director on the East Coast and did very well and uh, went out to, to Hollywood and didn't do so well. Uh, he was followed by Joseph P. Kennedy, John Kennedy's father. And he was out in Hollywood for a while and tried his hand at it and didn't do so well. But individuals only had so much money. And since movies are expensive and difficult to produce, individual outsiders usually ended up broke and then ejected from the Hollywood club. So the moguls turned their attention to corporate investors. Thus, from the 1960s onward, the studios would get in bed with the wolves of Wall Street.
Corporations like Golf and Western, Coca-Cola, Transamerica, Westinghouse, Matsushita, Vivendi, and Seagram's snorted up the Hollywood studios like cocaine. Led by greedy agents, they also became drunk on power and demanded more and more creative control. The screenwriter or the director are usually adamant about having creative control because it is their canvas that the scenario is being painted on. Rembrandt and Picasso would not like me coming up and taking his brush stroke and trying to initiate a new brush stroke to alter his canvas. Understandably, the Hollywood studios needed money to make films, but they didn't want unqualified businessmen telling them how to make them. Thus, the successors to the savvy movie moguls that once ran the studios as works of art would have to adapt or fight their new corporate masters. Creative control of the movie industry was now at stake. You can't query a studio anymore to see if they want to see your script. This has been relegated to the agents, and the agents sit there basically deciding what scripts will be submitted to Hollywood. You take 20,000 scripts written every year, subjecting them to the, the business mentality of the agents, and then only those scripts can get submitted to studios. The creative process of Hollywood studios has been totally preempted by agents, lawyers, and business people. He has so many previous commitments already that we are looking at several years down the line. As corporate ownership of the studios became more prevalent, the battle for creative control became more intense and finally gave rise to a new camp known as the Hollywood Insider. The term Hollywood Insider refers to a small group of people who occupy the most important or most powerful positions in Hollywood. But the main focus of it is on the studio executives, the top studio executives at the major studio distributors. That's the real core of the Hollywood control group or the Hollywood insiders. People who, for one reason or another, by circumstance, have uh, either bullied their way or earned their way into positions uh, such that they can be very intimidating to people who are on the outside. A Hollywood insider is any person who is a major star, director, writer, producer, powerful agent, personal manager, attorney, or a member of what could be called traditional management. The term traditional management originates from the idea that certain management teams consist of a preponderance of executives that are related to the original movie moguls, their families, and or close associates. Traditional management is another one of those terms that, that's related to Hollywood Insider, Hollywood Control Group, Hollywood Establishment, but it's sort of, by choice of words, it sort of implies, well, there's a long-standing traditional group of people who uh, run Hollywood and control basically which films are produced and released by the major studio distributors, which are in turn the film seen by most people in the U.S. and around the world. Thus, to understand how traditional management has been able to win the creative control battle against the money men, we have to look at a tactic known as the mass exodus. Over time, if there are conflicts between the, the corporate owner of the, the studio and this Hollywood insider management that they've hired, then the 
insider management group sometimes would use the threat of a mass exodus. In other words, everybody's going to leave at one time if you don't do what we say. <laughs> that sort of thing is a threat, and that actually occurred in the history of Hollywood used against outside corporate interests. For instance, when Transamerica Corporation bought United Artists, Arthur Krim, Mike Metavoy, and other executives left and formed Orion Pictures. Orion became a well-regarded studio under such leadership as Barbara Boyle, whereas United Artists floundered. Another example of a mass exodus is when Alan Ladd Jr. left 20th Century Fox when oil billionaire Marvin Davis bought it. They didn't like the way Davis was basically managing the place, even though he was the owner. Fox had major problems. Given these experiences and many other mass exoduses, Hollywood insiders have been able to defeat the money men. Creative control gave rise to what could be called the Hollywood control group. Thus, he who had the know-how and creative control ruled the movie business. The creative parties in a motion picture want creative control. The people who are bringing the money to the motion picture want ownership control. The creative people in the film industry want creative control because they want to make the film that they envision for their finished production. Whereas the owners, they want something that will give them the greatest revenue. Well, we, we, it's just simply that we cannot uh, accept unsolicited material. As the Hollywood control group became increasingly reliant on outside financing, yet harassed by conglomerate ownership, it began to circle the wagons and stick together more than ever. I think the phrase control group is generally used to describe a small group of people that have great influence over some uh, activity or some celebrity or some powerful political figure. They're usually in the background. So. I think that's what we're talking about when we use the phrase a control group. It's these people in the background who represent a lot of money and also who have a very strong political and ideological objective. To the outside world, the new corporate executives who were replacing the movie moguls and even traditional management seemed cold and less sensitive to traditional American values. There was money to be made and an agenda to be kept. The Hollywood control group was becoming predatory, unethical, and even engaged in illegal business practices. Competition is, to a certain extent, always predatory. Company A is trying to gain a greater market share over company B by producing a better product or a cheaper product or a product that is better advertised or whatever, trying to gain that advantage. And eventually, company B is going to be removed from the process. And one could look at that and say, well, that's predatory. But it's predatory in a good sense because it increases efficiency and consumer satisfaction and so forth and so on. If we're talking about predation that is unethical or illegal, that's exactly the opposite side of the coin. It's an attempt to remove or limit the ability of a, com of a competitor to function through some kind of unethical, immoral, improper in that sense, or sufficiently illegal activity. Yes, the new Hollywood is nothing like the old Hollywood, and the new movies are nothing like the old movies. In fact, by the 1960s, movies with violent and shocking images had become standard. Psychologists might even say Hollywood is now dramatizing all the negative things that have happened to it and its founders. Everything from theatrical divestiture to the Holocaust. Most of the people in the mainstream media 
Hollywood studio system, their demure to this whole thing has always been and is now. Look, we're just businessmen. We're just making money. We're just out to make a buck. Okay, we don't care how we do it. Okay, and if in the process people think that we're biased or or our, our movies are slanted towards some abstract political philosophy that nobody can really define, you know, that's just fine. Let them think that. Because the bottom line is, people are going to buy our tickets to see our movies, or they're not. The Hollywood studios became violence-oriented, less tolerant, and politically correct. And now these dramatizations have been institutionalized and funneled through just six conglomerates, which own and amplify everything. The real power is in the hands of the top three studio executives, the people who have green light authority over which movies are produced and uh, released. And that's the chairman of the board, some of whom are more active than others uh, over time, and then the uh, president of the studio and the head of production. Three top executives in each of the six studios, plus three top executives in each of the six networks, plus three top executives in each of the six conglomerates, and that equals 54. 54 top executives in all. This could now be called the control group of the U.S. mass media oligopoly. The U.S. mass media oligopoly, which could be said to be comprised of the six conglomerates, the six studios, and the six networks, is basically dominated by 54 males of European heritage. 2% female, six, six women at, at, over time have served as studio executives in those three powerful positions. And it turns out again that almost 100% are white. I did a massive amount of research, spent a lot of time over at the UCLA Entertainment Studies and spent a lot of time over at the Academy Library, uh, which actually had these big eight by 11 envelopes filled with press clippings on each of these individuals. And so I ended up with this chart, filling in this chart, and the result was that Hollywood is controlled. If you assume that the power really is in the hands of these studio executives, which I did, uh, that Hollywood is controlled by a small group of politically liberal, not very religious Jewish males of European heritage. Anybody can observe that and report that. Uh, USC School of Journalism and Communications just came out this year with a study confirming that Hollywood was sorely lacking in diversity in terms of race, gender, and, and uh, ethnicity. But before one can understand how either the Hollywood control group or the oligopoly control group are promoting the globalist agenda and undermining founding principles, one must understand something about the influences that hit Hollywood shortly after the original movie moguls passed away. Uh, you know, I, I don't think she's available at the moment. Um, can I take your number down and I'll pass the message along? Karl Marx believed that you would have uh, a rebellion by the workers uh, against uh, the capitalist system, which would then create uh, a Marxist uh, communist society in the wealthiest and most industrialized countries. It never happened. When the workers of the world did not unite behind Lenin's economic political Marxism, certain political scientists got together in Frankfurt, Germany, and formed a research center they called the Institute for Social Research. Later known as the Frankfurt School, 
This group of Marxist philosophers tried to figure out why the workers of the world did not unite behind economic political Marxism. As Max Horkheimer, one of the school's founders, put it, Marx got it all wrong. The workers are not up to being the vanguard of the communist revolution. Let's translate Marxism into cultural terms. By cultural terms, Horkheimer meant cultural institutions like the movies. Workers of the world were more united by the movies they watched than the economic and political institutions they supported. Every single major mainstream institution has been influenced heavily by uh, culture Marxism, which is at the core uh, of this movement. And this has been a, an assault on the very character and nature of our country. America was born not as a Marxist nation, but as a, a nation of liberty and a nation of law, a nation that respected the laws of God, the natural laws of God, the revealed laws of God. Cultural Marxism is, is the polar opposite of those values. And since they have taken over, for the most part, the major mainstream institutions of America, now we are literally inundated with cultural Marxism to the point that that we have a generation today that probably wouldn't even recognize it as cultural Marxism. They would recognize it as norm. Given this turn of events, the Frankfurt School reasoned that the movie industry and all other cultural institutions had to be infiltrated and destroyed. George Lukacs. I see the revolutionary destruction of society as the one and only solution. A worldwide overturning of values cannot take place without the annihilation of the old values, the creation of the new ones by the revolutionaries. So to get to that point, they said we have to destroy the culture. And what they were talking about was the Christian culture, uh, what we used to call Christendom or Western civilization. As fate would have it, many of the Frankfurt School's leading lights had to leave for America when World War II broke out. Now safe in New York at places like Columbia University, the school's social engineers began applying their techniques to each new crop of studio executives emerging from the nation's Ivy League colleges. Antonio Granzi, one of the notable leaders of the Frankfurt School, put it this way. The civilized world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2,000 years. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot, therefore, be overthrown until those roots are cut. Gramsci actually uh, argued with a lot of his fellow communists who wanted to take control physically. He said, no, no, the way to do it is to march through the institutions, march through the churches and through the uh, schools and through the, uh, the media, through the, the, the culture. And uh, he actually was in prison and he wrote a book that outlined his thinking and his thinking has been adopted by a lot of people. And sure enough, the long march eventually saturated the youthful minds of even the Hollywood control group. Screenplays and movies of every possible anti-Christian, anti-family and anti-capitalist theme now poured forth from Hollywood. And the long march didn't infect just the Hollywood movie studios. It hit the new radio and TV industries, the theater, the music industry, book and magazine publishing industries, the public school system, and even the clergy.
in the first part of the 20th century through the middle part of the 20th century, there were a lot of pastors and, and clergymen and ministers that saw this coming and they did speak out against it. Unfortunately, as he got into the second half of the 20th century, uh, the clergy, the ministers, the pastors became much more oriented toward success. Big buildings, big crowds, uh, big offerings. Uh, it became a success-driven ministry as opposed to a truth-driven ministry. And so for the second half of the 20th century and now into the 21st century, the resistance of the clergy and of the church in general is almost non-existent. Yes, during this long march, traditional values would be replaced with Marxist values, a worldwide overturning of values as Lukacs had promised. Eventually, only what's politically correct was to remain. Political correctness is thus the attempt to use speech to control thought and behavior. It's an extension of the Marxist doctrine of equality, but applied to speech. Make speech equally acceptable, tolerable to all people, and thought and behavior can be universally controlled as well. What that really means is that you're only allowed to express or even hold viewpoints that are accepted in a very narrow box. These are accepted and approved viewpoints. And if you have viewpoints outside of that, you'll be demonized and attacked and marginalized. What's happened to us? It's sad. Berkeley was the epicenter of the free speech movement in the 60s, holding a sign outside of the archway. Now it is becoming the epicenter of the no free speech movement. You know, just advocating, speaking like the founding fathers, advocating limited government, advocating that the government be bound by the Constitution, and advocating that you know, police officers and, and members of the military have an obligation and duty to refuse unlawful orders, for example. Even that alone is considered to be outside the bound. Uh, if you're told that something is incorrect and therefore you must not speak about it, the implication is that the reason you shouldn't speak about it or use certain words is because it's bad. Well, if it's bad, then if you have those thoughts and you think that it was okay, then there's something wrong with you. You see what I'm trying to say? The implication is, especially if you're just a child in school and you're picking up this concept of political correctness as a child, you're being taught not only what is acceptable, but you're being taught of what is right and wrong. And therefore, you are absorbing the values, the cultural values, the mores of those who are setting the standards. And nowhere is politically correct thought and behavior more controlled than academia and its spawn, the new corporate Hollywood. Yes, totalitarian in nature, political correctness is not only an enemy of free speech, it's literally a synonym for cultural Marxism itself. And Hollywood was infected big time. The three best-known techniques from the Frankfurt School's social engineers are critical theory, cultural pessimism, and androgyny. The United States has undergone a cultural, moral, and religious revolution. And a militant secularism has arisen in this country. It's always had a hold on the intellectual and academic elites. 
But in the 1960s, it captured the young in the universities and the colleges. And we had this great battle cultural war begin then nationally. And since then, if you will, secularism has, has really achieved dominance in the academic community and the intellectual community and the entertainment community in Hollywood, uh, among part of the, uh, the political community, but not the nation as a whole. We won the Cold War with political and economic communism. We've lost the cultural war with cultural Marxism, which I think has prevailed pretty much in the United States, or is now the dominant culture, whereas those of us who are traditionalists, we are, if you will, the counterculture. So Pat Buchanan is correct, of course. Um, and as I discussed in yesterday's video, the three pillars of our culture that have been hijacked seem to be the mainstream media, academia, um, and Hollywood, which we knew based upon the intentions, the stated intentions of um, the Frankfurt School. Today, corporate Hollywood extensively uses androgyny to indoctrinate the youth. In the simplest of terms, androgyny is the social science of making men into women and women into men. In other words, confusing men and women about their sexuality and their roles in society. The confusion is accomplished over decades of critical but subtle indoctrination about sexual identity and male-female roles. Hollywood movies today provide a feeding ground for a lot of confusion and a lot of unnecessary false identities for particularly the youth of our country and the world today in terms of their own sexuality and their gender identification. Uh, we need to all be respectful of one another and not be judgmental. But when you get to a point where you're questioning which bathroom you should go into, it's really, frankly, in my opinion, reached the point of ridiculousness. Put another way, almost all Hollywood movies, especially buddy films and coming-of-age films, promote the idea that homosexuality is as prevalent as heterosexuality. Hollywood movies make it all as normal as apple pie. Women going to the office, taking care of business instead of being at home, taking care of the kids. A continuous misrepresentation of traditional male-female roles to the impressionable youth of America. What they're doing is they're trying to present the aberrant family, the dysfunctional family, as normal. That you should accept this, that you should get used to this, you should embrace this, uh, because this is just the way it's done everywhere. When children have the, the idea that dysfunction is normal, well then you are driving children into a mindset that they will act out those values and those principles which they've learned growing up. And I think unfortunately a lot of it is perpetrated by Hollywood celebrities because they may feel that they're gay or bisexual or transgender and they seem obsessed with promoting their activist agenda on the vast public. A public that is naive and is easily confused, particularly amongst young adults and teenagers and even middle schoolers. Yes, the long march has been very effective and movies have led the way.
Women endlessly assaulting and shooting males. Bad dads never at home, but out cheating with bad moms. Dysfunctional families with drug-infested kids. The message from Hollywood, the traditional family unit, parents and relationships suck. It's complicated. It was the Frenchman de Tocqueville who came to our country and he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. So cultural Marxism is the uh, introduction into America of pornography, drugs, uh, counterculture type things. In other words, attack the Ten Commandments. And almost every Hollywood movie carries all or part of this message as if it's some new production code or revenge on Will Hayes. Well, the Will Hayes production code, actually, that was the motion picture producer's production code. And it was something that was developed from the 1920s onwards, eventually goes out in the late 50s, early 60s. It was designed to maintain certain ethical, political, moral, social standards within the filmmaking industry. That in the 1960s, you get people coming along in the production industry who say, well, we want to test the envelope here. We want to start talking about subjects that are outside of these limitations. Uh, and they did. And they were essentially successful because the consumers were willing to watch these movies. In the new code, every Hollywood movie must have characters with at least one of the following attributes. One, the protagonist and or antagonist are divorced. Two, the female is dominant, controlling, violent, and or one-up on men. Three, the male is aloof, feminine, oversensitive, and or cheating. Four, somewhere in the family, at least one of the immediate members must be a lesbian, gay, bisexual, or radical women's liver. Often, attributes one through four are mixed with a touch of schizophrenia, stirred in as males and females swap roles in fluorescence. The basic unit of a family is where a male uh, as a sex uh, joins with a female as a sex and they're able to work together to help each other and by being able to work together to help each other they perfect each other they love each other they care for each other and in the process they learn to love and perfect and care for others within the society they become good citizens because they're good citizens within their own home and that produces a society that loves each other. Again, through endless repetition, Hollywood movies have institutionalized every aspect of androgyny by depicting traditional families as abnormal. One of the motives behind the common portrayal of a dysfunctional family unit that we see in so many motion pictures comes from the desire on the part of the creators of the movie to challenge the family unit. The family must be eliminated because as long as there's a family, people depend on each other and on the family rather than depending on the state, which means depending on those who rule the state. So I think people who are making motion pictures have probably somewhere along the line read some of these books about how evil the family is and subconsciously perhaps, maybe consciously, they are writing scripts that portray the family uh, to support this model. I am now a teacher at a school, at a private school, 
and a survey was sent out not long ago. And the first question was their name. The second question was, which gender do you identify with? And you could identify with either male, female, or neither. Well, I think it's, it's perpetrated confusion among so many people that it's been a very destructive thing in our culture. Again, Hollywood movies have institutionalized every aspect of androgyny by depicting traditional families as abnormal. Only that which is politically correct is normal. His schedule is pretty full, especially since we've just stopped shooting this year. Another fetish of the new Hollywood is to defame senior citizens. Remember that 90-year-old woman who came on camera and cussed right in your face? That also stiffed me for two months' rent when his deposit check bounced. What purpose could that possibly serve except to invalidate the elderly who tend to respect traditional values? And the elderly are not the only ones. By age 20, our kids have been treated to thousands of movies defaming not just the elderly, but entire populations. Usually it's the Arab, the Muslim, the Latino, the Asian, German, Russian, or African-American that's the bad guy in the movie. Of course, you see a lot of Arabs and Muslims as bad guys in movies, Germans and Nazis as bad guys in movies, uh, almost to the extent, I mean, World War II seems to be the real, uh, one of the real interests of Hollywood movies as opposed to other wars. And the white guy from the American South, the Christian, the conservative, and the entrepreneur don't do much better. We got a security problem here. This guy, he shouldn't be there. I know him. Jerry? One of the movies that I saw years ago, I starred Robert Duvall, and it was Geronimo. And there was a scene in the movie that had Robert Duvall turn to his friends, and he said, Texans are the lowest form of human life. Must be Texans. Lowest form of white man there is. What if a character in a movie said, African Americans are the lowest form of human life? Or gays and lesbians were the lowest form of human life. Or what if they said Jews were the lowest form of human life? Would that be funny or offensive? And at the Academy Awards, it's usually the same old group that gets the Oscars. Well, I'm here at the Academy Awards, uh, otherwise known as the uh, White People's Choice Awards. Never much diversity at the talent level because there's not much diversity at the executive level the place where casting and financing decisions are made. The control group only permits certain kind of movies to be made. Well, right there, this basically limits the writers that are going to write these movies because they have to be in conformity with the interests, values, cultural perspectives, and biases of the control group. So descending from the lack of diversity at the control group level, we have a lack of diversity at all the other levels. Immediately, if you have the same people that are greenlighting movies and deciding what movies are going to be made, who's going to be in those movies, you're going to have a lack of diversity at the talent level. So the reason everyone in the Oscars is screaming about a lack of diversity at the talent level 
is because there's a lack of diversity at the executive level. There are zero African-American studio heads in Hollywood. But the problem is, they're afraid to say that. Doesn't studio heads have to green light? Don't no. we really need African-American stakeholders in no. the room? No, you need people who will make, the, you need production companies that will make the movie. The facile answer is that the makers of movies are the producers, writers, directors, actors, and crews. So let's take a look at the executive level and see why Hollywood movies have become so politically correct, even championing socialist and Marxist values with impunity. Record your message at the tone. If it's reasonable to theorize that movies tend to reflect the interests of their makers, why would anyone make a movie that didn't interest them, at least to some degree? If this makes sense, is it reasonable to further theorize that movies tend to mirror not only interests, but values, cultural perspectives, and even the prejudices of their makers? And they also reflect the audience, because a film that doesn't connect with the audience in some way, um, you know, doesn't really make much money. Would Tolstoy's War and Peace have occurred had the Russian Revolution not occurred? Okay, so does it reflect reality or is it reality reflecting art? Okay, I think it's both. Well, many of the producers of those movies would say that they are merely reflecting the dysfunctional families of society. I would argue that the, the abundance of movies that portray dysfunctional families is not consistent with the majority of the American public. It's not as much a reflection of society as it is an attempt by the Hollywood moguls to direct society into an amoral uh, plane that, that they are choosing for society. So let's break this down further. Again, the facile answer is that the makers of movies are the producers, writers, directors, actors, and crews. And this is true. These people are the wizards that technically make the movies. The manufacturing process of movies is extremely expensive. In fact, of all human art forms, the production of motion pictures is probably the most expensive. Today, the average cost of a major Hollywood movie is over $100 million. And some movies, such as Avatar and Star Wars, cost over $300 million. Given this, the people who finance movies are extremely important. In fact, if a movie can't be made unless it's financed, the people who finance movies may be more important than the producers, writers, directors, and actors who actually work on the project. If true, for all practical purposes, the makers of movies are the executives that select screenplays and finance their production. One of the things you learn in, in the film industry is that writers are told, write what you know directors tend to direct movies that they're interested in. 
uh, studio executives tend to choose movies that interest them, you know, that sort of align with their cultural perspective. And so anytime you have a, a narrow group of individuals who are in those control positions, which have the, the a power to determine which movies are produced and released, then it's only natural that those movies tend to, over time, there are always exceptions, but tend to mirror the values, interests, cultural perspectives, and prejudices of their makers, including the studio executives who choose which movies are made and who gets to work on those movies at the top level. Thus, in reality, movies tend to reflect the interests, values, cultural perspectives, and prejudices of the control group that makes them. But just knowing that the control group is comprised of the three top executives does not explain why Hollywood releases certain movies and suppresses others. We need to explore more closely what the Hollywood control group is interested in. If this can be answered, we should be able to more accurately induce the exact demographic of the control group. Or again, movies reflect the interests, values, cultural perspectives, and prejudices of their makers. The most accurate description of the people who control Hollywood and have for 115 years is a small group of politically liberal, not very religious Jewish males of European heritage. I think other people who are less accurate in their description are not doing anybody a favor by misstating the facts or just partially stating the facts. Earlier, we touched on the observable fact that Hollywood's most blatant patterns of bias are racial, regional, religious and political. Although Hollywood films originally took a more positive approach toward mainstream religious beliefs, after 1968, films generally began portraying an antagonistic anti-religious slant, especially toward Christianity. Anything dealing with Christianity or Christ uh, is kind of brushed aside when you've got someone like Mel Gibson who brings in millions if not billions of dollars as a star and yet the studios won't won't give him the money to make a kind of a poignant beautiful movie uh, about biblical history and on the other hand schindler's list that got all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the all of the backing that that was necessary so maybe it's not quite as fairly balanced as it should be you know mel gibson was determined to make that film knowing that the Hollywood establishment would never support it, would not fund it, in fact, would actually do everything they could to stop it from being uh, produced. And I, I think to the chagrin of, of the Hollywood elite, you know, The Passion of the Christ was one of the most successful, one of the most powerful movies that was ever made and will live in movie history forever. Other than total bigotry towards certain religious groups, Hollywood movies constantly suppress themes that champion the nuclear family, a sound monetary system, non-interventionist foreign policies, free market capitalism, and the right to keep and bear arms. Such subjects are of little or no interest to the Hollywood control group, and in fact, threaten it. Hollywood and the news media, the constant drumbeat is that we're in danger. And you look at it like, a, you know, almost like a sitcom or, or, or a soap opera. You know, you're being told every day that there's another boogeyman who's going to come and get you, whether it's ISIS or Al-Qaeda 
or active shooters, and almost all of these movies and shows will talk about, well, things are bad enough and you have to have martial law. There's never constitutional solutions like the people providing their own security. It's always more government power. On the other hand, movies about travel, food, pets, Hitler, and the Nazis, most replete with nudity and the objectification of women, are of infinite interest to the Hollywood control group. Then there is the ongoing show known as the War on Terror, featuring real-life Arabs and Muslims as the bad guys. I think the War on Terror can be correctly described as a show, because I, I don't think it's real. It's not to say that terror is not real, because it is. What it is to say is that it's not what we think it is, and its origin is not what we think it is. Terrorism is largely the product of the people and groups that benefit from fighting terrorism. The war on terror is a $4.5 trillion waste of money. We've lost our civil liberties through the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. All of this goes back to 9-11. And the heart of that matter is at the World Trade Center. If there's any question about what happened, then we've got to focus in on it with laser beam attention. Hollywood movies today, I'm not so sure in the past, but certainly today, they tend to reflect the goals and the policies of the upper levels of the political system. They tend to be mouthpieces, basically speaking, for Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. is promoting the war on terror. Washington, D.C. developed the Department of Homeland Security in response to the declaration of the war on terror. And so it's not surprising that Hollywood would glorify that. And with the war on terror, Hollywood movies, along with their buddies and the rest of the mainstream media, feel justified in promoting endless paranoia, hence endless need for more security. Now, local police, the National Guard, the FBI, the CIA, the Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force are not enough. We now also need the TSA and the Department of Homeland Security, a police force modeled after Heinrich Himmler's Department of National Security. If we don't know what a police state is, watch the news. If you want to know what a police state is, go through an airport and be frisked and have uh, the TSA stick their hands down your pants, claiming that you are a suspect with no evidence. The police state is where everyone is guilty until proven innocent. So, thanks to Hollywood's endless parade of violence-oriented, terror-ridden movies, we now need endless security in our streets, our restaurants, security at our schools, at the mall, in our homes, even at the toilet, a buzzer for the direct line to 911. And New York City, where so much of this security is now found, is becoming more of a police state every day. That's unnecessary. I see the media as actually, the mainstream media as being much more um, like a movie these days. Um, it's so unreal that it has to be a movie. They are completely scripted, and it has just escalated more and more. I find it them completely creating a bizarre reality, if you will, because I don't really see them as reality. And if they are, that 
If that is reality, that is pretty frightening to me. Stop and frisk. Police and cameras everywhere. Walls and barricades all over. Why would anyone want to attack New York City, one of the largest gun-free zones in America? Oh, wait. The bad guys already have attacked it. Twice. You read the Declaration of Independence, we're living under the exact same type of uh, tyrannical uh, rule, but it, in some cases it's even worse. We have hordes of bureaucrats out there eating out our substance. A police state isn't just uniformed officers running checkpoints on the highway. It's bureaucrats forcing their way into your home. Uh, it's oppressive tax surveillance systems that track everything you do. A police state is what we see America rapidly segueing into today. So if movies mirror their makers, what kind of a maker would put out movies about endless wars, endless violence, and the need for endless security, other than a group of paranoid studio and network execs that have defamed almost every population on Earth just to make a profit or to promote an agenda? Yes, the Hollywood studios vilify anything corporate or capitalist. Indeed, Karl Marx, one of Hollywood's A-list writers, made capitalism his number one enemy. It's therefore no surprise that the number one swear word in Hollywood is profit, and the number two swear word is corporation. Is it thus any surprise that almost every Hollywood movie also makes the greedy, profit-driven corporation the bad guy, and the Uncle Sam government the good guy. Atlas Shrugged, a pro-corporation movie based on a best-selling book, was turned down by the Hollywood control group for decades. Ayn Rand wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged. This book was kicking around Hollywood for decades and decades. Even though it was a bestseller, nobody in Hollywood wanted to make it. Why? Because it makes the corporation the good guy. And as we know, in every Hollywood movie, the corporation is the bad guy, and the government is the good guy. The mom and pop government FBI! is the good guy, coming running in with the sticker on their back that says FBI, they saved the day. So Ayn Rand's great book, Atlas Shrugged, sat on the shelf for decades and decades. And everybody else was making every other movie bashing corporations, from RoboCop on down to James Cameron's Avatar. I mean... Here we not only have corporations in America that are evil, the corporations all over the universe and solar system. Their village happens to be resting on the richest unobtainium deposit within 200 clicks in any direction. I mean, look at all that cheddar. <laughs> so Ayn Rand dared to make a movie where yes. the corporation wasn't the evil guy, and Hollywood just cannot have something like that. If the project does not mirror the interests, values, cultural perspectives, or prejudices of the makers, it does not get made in Hollywood. And movies about good corporations do not interest the Hollywood control group. Interestingly, profit does interest the Hollywood control group, but only if it's their profit and its acquisition does not interfere with the control group's political or religious bias. This is why Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, was not financed by a major studio, even though Gibson is an A-list talent. 
and his previous pictures have garnered over $1.5 billion in revenues for the MPAA studio distributors. Movies like that and, and, and anything to do with, has any biblical context or any kind of a spiritual message, the studios simply, for the most part, don't get behind. All said, Hollywood's ostensible disdain for profit and corporations is disingenuous, if not ironic, for the studios, networks, and their parent conglomerates are some of the most profitable corporations on the planet. Accordingly, executives garner some of the highest salaries in the world. Well, there is a lot of money being made in Hollywood, and, and uh, it's, it's reported all the time in the, in the press. And a lot of the studio executives and a lot of the top talent are paid a significant amount of money, uh, unbelievable amounts of money. But I don't think it's fair to say, well, that's, that's a bribe for being quiet. On the other hand, it is fair to observe that people who are paid a lot of money for what they do tend not to complain. For instance, in 2014, Rupert Murdoch, CEO of 21st Century Fox, earned $29.2 million. Brian Roberts, CEO of Comcast, earned $31.4 million. Jeffrey Bukes, CEO of Time Warner, earned $32.5 million. Robert Iger, CEO of Disney, earned $34.3 million. Phillips Dahlman, CEO of Viacom, earned $37.2 million. And thanks to the star system and its greedy, rude agents, A-list stars routinely get $20 million per picture. Some more, like Robert Downey Jr., who got 75 for Iron Man, and Leonardo DiCaprio, who got 25 million for The Wolf of Wall Street. Another capitalist loathing movie that dramatizes how big and bad corporations are. Salaries uh, are certainly not necessarily in Hollywood commensurate with talent or, or being deserving. Same thing's true on Wall Street. The salaries are totally disproportionate to you know the, the the real worth of the talent or the studio head so the idea that the movie business is a risky business is simply a conspiracy theory the hollywood corporations make as much or more money than any of the big mean corporations it endlessly depicts and a very small portion of the pie you know goes to the real creative people who are trying to you know present their artistry as best they can because the bigger portion of the pie goes to the moguls. And there are hundreds of ways the Hollywood control group not only profits, but maintains control over all aspects of its empire. For instance, ever hear of creative accounting or contracts of adhesion? Creative accounting, this is a term that most of us have heard, and what does it mean? It simply means that instead of following carefully uh, mapped out acceptable standards, known as GAAP, Generally Accepted Accounting Practices, which is used by the whole world. It just basically means that you, you bring in your accountants and you just let it, let it wing, let it fly, you know, just put the numbers wherever you want and, and subtract this and deduct that and capitalize whatever you want, expense what you want, anything you can think of to be creative. And, you know, if anyone wants to argue with you, then that means they have to go hire their $300 an hour accountant and argue with you. 
So the studio will sit there and they will fight you and fight you with their $300 an hour accountants. And the amount of money you thought you were cheated out of will be basically uh, equal to the amount of money that you will have spent on your $300 an hour accountant. Hundreds of predatory, unethical, and often illegal business practices used by the Hollywood Control Group over the decades to enrich themselves and to send everyone else into bankruptcy. Here's what Hollywood tends to do when it loses in court, and I've seen this in several instances. They simply modify their behavior a little bit, uh, not too much. So block booking is a situation where a distributor goes to an exhibitor. The distributor is represented by an individual. Exhibitors represented by an individual. They're friends. They know each other. They meet and barbecue in their backyard, and they have an informal conversation that goes something like this. Hey, you know, we've got this blockbuster coming down the pipeline here in the next six months, and uh, if you'd like to get that, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you'd run these other two films too, one of which is okay, and the other is probably not very good. So in my judgment, block booking is alive and well. It's just not formal. Practices that include unjust enrichment, David Begelman-style embezzlement, reciprocal preferences, cross-collateralization, turnaround, conflicts of interest, false accusations of anti-Semitism, blacklisting, concept theft, monkey points, inflated budgets, contracts of adhesion. A contract of adhesion occurs when the bargaining parties are basically totally disproportionate. You have a multi-billion dollar studio basically contracting with a starving writer. The multi-billion dollar studio is in a position to basically say to the starving writer, here's your contract, take it or leave it. We're paying you $10.99 for your script, take it or leave it. And then suddenly the screenplay produces a movie that makes a billion dollars. Okay, so the next time then the studio comes back to the writer and says, hey, will you write another screenplay for us? And the writer says, sure, but I'm charging $10 million for this screenplay. Contrary to arguments of Hollywood apologists, the cultural Marxist-infected control group does not maintain power because it's smarter than anyone else or more able than anyone else. It maintains power because it uses predatory, unethical, and illegal business practices better than anyone else. It also pushes power to only its circle of insiders. Employment discrimination can be looked at in two ways. It can be looked at in a good way. I am going to discriminate between two individuals applying for a job because individual A has superior background, skills, and so forth, and so on to individual B. So I am clearly discriminating in that case. Discrimination in the uh, undesirable case, socially undesirable, politically undesirable case, is where I choose individual A over individual B because of some characteristic of individual A or B that's completely unrelated to the performance of the job. We'd like to supply you with a home of your own, a car, a generous bank account, and employment with our company. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that some of the studio executives uh, and people who are in high positions in Hollywood are somewhat lucky in the sense that they might have been born into the into the right family that had family ties to the film industry over the years. After all, there's uh, you know some of the same families and some of the same cultural cousins or people with a similar background have dominated that industry for over 115 years. And in my view, that's impossible without mass discrimination occurring over this period of time. Uh, and this discrimination occurs specifically in the form of nepotism, cronyism, and favoritism. 
It's thus no wonder almost every corporation depicted in a Hollywood movie is evil and profit-driven. Hollywood wrote the book on the subject. Now it's dramatizing its own corporate behavior. Sorry, sorry, it's unavailable. Record your message at the tone when you are finished. Thanks to the responsible creative control exercised by the original movie moguls throughout Hollywood's golden era, the studios profited by making creative movies that were on a wide spectrum of subjects, as discussed by Ethan Morton in his book, The Hollywood Studios. But today, the corporatized Marxists that infest Hollywood put out any agenda-promoting movie that will make a profit, regardless of how crude, disgusting, exploitive, or puerile the movie is. Ask the executives that greenlit Dirty Grandpa. And needless to say, the number one element in many Hollywood movies is violence, because violence sells, especially in international markets, where the streets now look little different than Hollywood movie sets. Movies have become actually pretty boring because they're all, all violent right now. And I remember a time when they were more psychological thrillers. I liked those, the English gothic uh, films. And then um, at some point, I would say probably in the late 70s, they moved over from the, the Twilight Zones and the Night Gallery and, the, and you know, the Vincent Price type of films to just complete uh, bloodlust. And... There was really nothing to figure out in that, and it has just escalated more and more. I find it so unreal that it has to be a movie. And in today's right. world, the role it? models that are being offered huh? to young people huh? are not necessarily the white hats at all. They're cynical people. A lot of them have uh, criminal instincts. Uh, a lot of them are doing very bad things, and they have... On screen, they show no scruples, they show no compassion, they show no morals, no ethics, and yet they are the role models. Many of these characters are violent, and that's what makes them, you know, big tough guys. They're really good guys because they're violent. And um, so that's, that's the image that's being presented, and I think that it has created a generation or more of people who are not sensitive anymore to violence. I love movie violence. I know that might seem a little strange, but I'm just being honest with myself. You aren't messed up because you make a film about killing. You're messed up if you actually kill. Yes, the very studio executives that say they are concerned about so much violence in the world and who advise we never forget the Holocaust profit by selling violence to every corner of the world. Is it any wonder the planet is so war-torn if movies reflect their makers' interests, why are the makers so interested in violence? Does Hollywood breed global violence and terror? Many feel it does. It certainly profits from global violence and terror. Jack Valenti, past president of the MPAA, said that movies are mere entertainment. Is he right? Are movies mere entertainment? Entertainment that happens to reflect the violent world in which we live? Not according to a thousand studies that have come out over the past 40 years. According to them, movies cause violence. You see active shooters on the screen, then you get copycats who decide they want to go out like that, they want to be famous. And of course the media, when there's an active shooter, instead of withholding the guy's name and denying him that fame, they instead put his name and his face all over the cameras, and that just makes them want to do more of that.
someone's unstable and wants to go out and be in the history books, they know that they can count on the media to put their face and their name all over the place and, and pass it back and forth, you know, 24-7. By the time our children are 18 years old, they have seen over 20,000 murders and 200,000 violent acts in the movies. And part of the reason is, is that that feeds the bigger agenda, curtail your right to bear arms, curtail your freedom, have more surveillance of all of us. The violence in, in movies affects the child's brain. When there's a lot of killing in movies, children don't see that there's a consequence to it. And often the villains that are portrayed are stereotyped. You could take whatever's bugging the government or uh, some particular group of people and put them as the villain and then there you go you start conditioning the person that this particular group of people is dangerous thanks to hollywood our kids have learned to not only hate old people and dads but moms families girlfriends boyfriends seniors latinos arabs muslims asians germans blacks christians conservatives profit corporations free markets competition capitalism, and even the U.S. Constitution. The first principle in the U.S. Constitution is limited government. And it's certainly not my perception that what is coming out of Hollywood today in any way champions limited government. If anything, it champions the extension of government in whatever area you can imagine from the war on terror on the one side to government intervention, public education, healthcare, and so forth and so on. There's very little that comes out of Hollywood that you could say is informed by the principles of the founding fathers. So if you look at it from the terms of those principles, I would say no, Hollywood generally does not support the United States Constitution. Our kids have also learned how to be stress-free on the pharmaceutical drugs advertised endlessly on network TV while mass murdering their classmates in the Hollywood-promoted public school system. How does this happen? Ben Baddickian, author of the new Media Monopoly, says bluntly that media power is political power. Aren't there examples, and might not Brooke Shields be an example of someone who benefited from one of those drugs? All it does is mask the problem. You're here on the Today Show, right? and to talk about it in a way of saying, well, isn't it okay, and being reasonable about it when you don't know. I've lived with these people, and they're better. So you're, you're advocating it. I am not. I'm telling you, in their <laughs> case, it, in their that. individual case, it worked. Drugs aren't the answer. That these, these drugs are very dangerous. They're mind-altering, antipsychotic drugs. Most politicians never criticize the mainstream media. They know the New York or Hollywood control group can make or break their careers. Well, I think it's self-evident that media power in the broader sense of media is political power because how does one obtain political power in a democratic system where you're trying to influence voters? It's through their interaction with news, entertainment, opinion, opinion leaders, if you will. And how do those interactions occur? Well, it's through some form of media, whether in the 19th century it was newspapers, and in the 20th century comes radio, television, motion pictures, internet. 
So the more a particular political point of view is able to operate through those media and influence individuals, the more that political point of view will tend to gain prominence and control. We don't, again, we don't accept any unsolicited materials. I'm getting a call on the other line. Can you hold for one second? And speaking of careers, Hollywood is the only industry in the world that has enslaved its unions and guilds. Any union or guild is supposed to serve the interests of workers, and it should be open to all workers. But that's not the way it is in Hollywood. In Hollywood, the unions and the guilds are basically under the domination of the studios. And by that, I mean that they act as the screening agents for the studios. The agents also act as screening agents for the studios. And this would include the agents that are signatory to the Writers Guild. Sure, the unions and guilds are there to protect the workers' careers, but only a handful of workers, the ones that get to work on signatory productions. Very difficult as to talk about who they actually serve. Do you go up and audition for a film? If you're not in the Screen Actors Guild, your agents probably can't get you in the door. So you have to hope that somebody, that you meet somebody along the line that says, listen, I want to give this kid a break. And then you, you get a job for a minimal amount of money, but you get your SAG card, your Screen Actors Guild card. In effect, the unions and guilds sign contracts with the studios that result in a soft collusion that bars millions of workers from employment in the motion picture industry. These so-called signatory productions thus form a cartel of discrimination that screens out talented new actors, writers, crew members, and filmmakers with a sophisticated network of carefully designed Catch-22s. For instance, production agreements stipulate that one can't work on a signatory production unless they're in the union or guild. But one can't get in the union or guild unless they have worked on a signatory production. It's a Catch-22 because you, you can't really do a union film if you're not in the union, and you're not allowed to really do non-union work, so it's, it's very difficult. They keep a lot of people out. It's hard to earn your stripes and get that first break as a cinematographer or as an actor or whatnot, you know, in, in a movie or a TV show. And ever try submitting a screenplay to Hollywood or one of its nasty agents? It's almost impossible unless you know someone. Yes, at the advice of their paranoid lawyers, the new Hollywood studio executives now accept no unsolicited screenplays from the thousands of talented authors and writers across the nation. And even if you call one of the studio's agents or signatory production companies to query them for interest, a time-honored practice, they consider that very call unsolicited. Well, we can, we, it's just simply that we cannot uh, accept unsolicited material. In other words, they got to call you up and go, yo, uh, <laughs> James, we hear you got a whole bunch of scripts out there. Let's let's start sending these puppies in. <laughs> we, we, we need some scripts here at, uh, at ABC Studios. Um, unless you put out a best-selling book and you're a best-selling author, Hollywood is not going to solicit your screenplay. And good luck getting anyone on the phone. You can't even talk to anyone at a studio unless you know the specific name of the person you're calling. Yes, writers with fresh, original concepts or a diversity of unique stories can go to as far as the Hollywood studios are concerned. The Hollywood Control Group makes sure 
only its little bevy of studio-approved union-bribed writers get the job. Nepotism, cronyism, and favoritism are simply forms of discrimination that have been used in Hollywood over the years to maintain control over the industry for, again, over 100 years, which I think is an absolute impossibility without discrimination. So nepotism is hiring someone because they're family. Cronyism is hiring someone because they're friends. Uh, favoritism is hiring someone based on some arbitrary factor that you favor. And in this sense, it tends to be people who are like the people who are in control. Is it any wonder almost every Hollywood movie is a clone of almost every other Hollywood movie? If you limit the number of writers that you are willing to employ, you're going to limit the number of stories that are being told. And in my view, you're going to limit the breadth of the viewing audience that you can attract to your films. I suppose that people interested in ownership control want to limit the writing staff in order to control the messages that are being sent out in their productions. But it also may limit the size of the viewership and therefore limit the revenue that the, your pictures bring in. And want to produce a movie in Hollywood? Surprise, the star system is there to drive you crazy and then suck every penny from your bank account before spitting you out. In short, a studio won't finance your project unless you have one of its overly paid name talents officially attached. You've got to get a director, a name director attached to it, or a name movie star. And that's really, really difficult. So as a result of that, there's a lot of really talented projects that might come to fruition and be incredibly successful projects never get to see the light of day. But here's the catch-22. A named talent won't officially attach unless the project is already set up, studio speak, for financed. Thus, in order to get a movie financed in the new Hollywood's star system, you have to already have financed the movie yourself with outsider money. In short, the publicly owned movie corporations discriminate against the public by refusing to do business with anyone who is not a Hollywood insider. It could be argued that in a free society, you should be free to discriminate any way you wish, as long as you don't injure a person. But in a broader sense, we all uh, should seek to be discriminate. We need to choose. We don't want to just uh, choose our friends. Put up values there and stick by them and pass by people that don't meet your values and your criteria. That's a good thing. So it depends on how the word discrimination is used. And in the field of Hollywood, I suppose you could argue it either way. Many of Hollywood's business practices amount to blatant discrimination and restraint of trade. And this is why a serious lack of diversity exists at every level of the movie industry. Restraint of trade is any limitation on trade using the free market as the standard. Are we preventing consumers from exercising real choice over products? Are we preventing producers from offering products to consumers? One doesn't have to be Nostradamus to predict that most of the people that work on the Hollywood movies are not Latino, not Arabs or Muslims, not blacks, Asians or females not Christians, and especially not conservatives. And guess what? You can be sure the control group is no different because all of the employment discrimination descends from the control group itself.
The phrase lack of diversity, which I use in my writing, is simply talking about the fact that there are not uh, a lot of different kinds of people, racial, ethnic, uh, gender, uh, at the top in Hollywood. As I said, there, you know, we're talking about uh, 2% women. I think one African-American, there were no African-Americans in my original study, one maybe since then in, in those studio head positions or those top three studio positions. No Latino, one Latino, I think, in my study. In, in, out of 226 people, uh, no Native Americans, no Asian Americans. Uh, that's a, a real lack of diversity uh, in Hollywood. In summary, with the demise of the studio system, Hollywood's modus operandi has been to circle the wagons, build huge walls with guarded gates, and establish a bunker mentality that rejects not only all the unsolicited screenplays, but all unsolicited people, places, and things. Hollywood even rejects the very concept of diversity itself. And this is why everyone is screaming at the Oscars. When you are finished, hang up or hold for more options. We've looked at the Hollywood-based movie studios and how they indoctrinate the youth, defame whole populations, and use unethical, predatory, and illegal business practices to keep the control group in power and deem everyone else unsolicited objects. Now let's take a look at how the New York-based mainstream media has expanded Hollywood's predatory business practices to indoctrinate and control us when we are older. This is where the real action takes place because after years of processing from politically correct Hollywood movies, the average young adult is now willing to swallow almost any lie about any person, company, or presidential candidate that is promoted or demonized by the corporate fascists in the New York Network's control group. Yes, TV advertising is very expensive. Thus only billionaires, large corporations, unions, associations, super PAC funded candidates and governments can afford fees of $5,000 to $1 million per minute. Only the rich, therefore, get to advertise and promote their products, causes and issues on network TV. In Hillary Clinton's America, the system stays rigged against Americans. Syria the amount of money it costs today to run for Congress or even to run for president is obscene. And most of that money goes into television commercials and spots and all of the mass media advertising that needs to be done to reach a vast number of people. Therefore, the media becomes the client of the government, or at least the person who's running for office. And when that person wins, if the media has supported him, naturally he wants to pay them back. He may not think of that consciously, but in appropriating licenses and expanding territories and allowing them to own one, more than one media outlet, that's exactly what happens. As a result, the number of media companies, as we said before, has concentrated in a few hands. And unfortunately, Congress and the media work together to present an image to the American people that does not always include every aspect of the truth. The public thus gets advertisements, programs, and so-called fake news that endlessly distort reality by spinning issues to align with the agenda of the mass media control group. This means American citizens are exposed to a very selective and narrow spectrum of products, issues, and causes on network TV. 
Anderson, this is a significant development. Let's say we're talking about uh, some applicants for employment as anchors on a news program, major media news program. And so here we have three, A, B, and C, and they're all equally uh, talented. They would all be capable of performing that function. One is a conservative, one is a moderate, and one is a liberal. And if the choice by the media mogul who's hiring these people is, well, I'm going to take the liberal because I want to promote a political ideology. I want to use my media power to promote that type of political policy. Would we say that's restraint of trade? Well, it's not restraint of trade, perhaps in the economic sense, because the person who was chosen, the liberal who was chosen, has the ability to perform that job equally with the other two. But it's restraint of trade in these ideas. And if you think of the media as being, as having some kind of duty to the public to provide uh, a broad spectrum of political ideas, some kind of political diversity, you'd say, well, yes, this is a kind of restraint of trade. Let's take a look at some of the products, issues, and causes we do see in TV advertisements, on the evening news, and in various programs, to the exclusion of all others. Some of the products we see ad nauseum are pharmaceutical drugs, oil-burning cars, debt-peddling banks, sickness-exploiting insurance, brain cell killing liquor. Six major conglomerates that control almost all of the mainstream media. And they're right in bed with big pharma and they're right in bed with the big defense contractors. Or who do you see advertising on TV? It's pharmaceutical companies, it's the car manufacturers who are being subsidized by the US government. So you've got these major corporations that are all in bed together. They're in the club, like, like George Carlin said. There's a club, you're not in it. Rarely or never seen are vitamins, electric cars, guns for self-protection, fusion, solar, or anything Nikola Tesla invented or would have approved of. I don't think no country worldwide will have real freedom before free energy and free uncontrollable communications. That's when freedom will come. Uh, more than 100 years ago, Tesla was talking about this. and. Uh, I don't think what's really happening, why we have to send all these troops out to protect pipelines and produce all these weapons, get in the war for energy, get communications controlled that much and spend billions of the dollars when we can really have our own energy here and other countries can have, or we can just take energy from Amazon. Distribute to the earth, standard of the living will be perfect and everybody will be free. That would be really freedom. Issues constantly pushed are gun control, but never the militia of the several states. Gay marriage, but rarely traditional marriage. Keynesian economics, but never Austrian economics. If people care about peace and prosperity, they have no choice. They have to go with free market Austrian economics, and they have to give up on regulations and economic controls by the Keynesian ideas. Socialized medicine, but never free market competition in the health industry. Radical women's lib, but never stay-at-home moms. The living constitution, but never the original intent of the founders. Incarceration for drug users, but rarely rehabilitation. 
big pharma assisted psychiatry, but never meditation or pastoral counseling. The reason why so many people are on pharmaceutical drugs today, specifically psychiatric drugs, is because the psychiatrists are convincing the public that they have a brain abnormality with no science, no facts, just based off of checklists. It's very subjective. So the marketing has been that there's something wrong with your brain, when in fact, it's, there's no science behind it. Depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. And the drugs actually hurt the brain. And the drugs increase violence, cause psychosis, mania. And this is a terrible thing that is happening to the public. So it's false advertising. Including risk of suicide may occur. Other side effects may include dry mouth. The most common side effects are dry mouth, headache, constipation, and abdominal pain. Dizzy when you stand up. Headache, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Could be side effects. And as far as causes, the mainstream media endlessly pushes the progressive cause, but rarely the conservative cause. The Democrats are heroes, but the Republicans are villains. You know, the activists, you know, gang up on the conservatives and vice versa and that exists within the studio system as well and the media drives hollywood and uh, and has a big impact because they they do all the promotion of all this activist agenda that we see creeping into our television series today and most of our movies donald trump is unfit for office but hillary clinton is what america needs collectivism is for the greater good but individualism is selfish. Multiculturalism is the future, but assimilation is xenophobic. Socialism is good, but capitalism is evil. Cooperation is desired, but competition is Darwinian. The 20th century taught any lesson whatsoever. It was that socialism was not only unworkable, but it was vastly destructive and killed millions and millions of people, caused wars and so forth and so on, economic uh, collapse. You name it. Socialism was an idea that should have been proven by the 20th century to be completely useless. And what do we have today? Well, the major media people are still promoting socialistic ideas. Welfare is more important than national defense. Globalization is good, but anything else is isolationist. Tariffs are bad, but taxes are a godsend. Secularism is sane, but religion is loony. World government is progressive, but national sovereignty is fascist. I think the United States should say to other nations, look, we've built a pretty good deal here. We've got a pretty good thing going in this United States of America. Why don't you adopt what we've done? Right? Here's a copy of our Constitution. Take it. Use it. Right? And, and we'll get back to using it more ourselves while you're doing that as well. Big government is necessary, but limited government is obsolete. Political correctness is proper, but all else is hate speech. Gold and silver are archaic, but fiat currency is modern. 
As one can see, there are many products, issues, and causes the mainstream media promotes and suppresses. It would be difficult to cover all that's suppressed, but these things could be classified as ideas, inventions, and innovations that stand between our current stagnant civilization and what our civilization could be with the power of creative individuals not truncated by media trolls on the bridge to liberty. It seems that the criteria the mainstream media uses to determine what it will promote and what it will suppress can almost be summarized in a single word, collectivism. Collectivism is merely uh, the broad description for an ideology that is based on certain principles, but the main one being that the group, the collective, is more important than the individual, and that the individual should be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. And if you can get that concept in your mind that, wait a minute, it's not a question of numbers, but of human rights and the dignity of an individual. And then if you say that the individual is the cornerstone of society and that to protect the rights of the individual, if you can do that, that is the greater good for the greater number, then you're on target again. The control group operates on a collectivist philosophy an anti-competition, anti-free market philosophy that promotes the central planning F.A. Hayek warned us about in the road to serfdom. If people care about peace and prosperity, they have no choice. They have to go with free market Austrian economics and they have to give up on regulations and economic controls by the Keynesian ideas. The collectivist is thus always seeking to maximize profit through consolidation, a consolidation he justifies by economies of scale. The problem with this smokestack economic theory is that it relies on globalization to increase stockholder value rather than innovation. In other words, the globalist seeks profit by selling more of the same tired products across global markets than attempting to produce new and better products through innovation. So the obsession with consolidation is actually a pathology of the collectivist mentality, dramatizing the desire for endless profit through endless domination. Why is it a leap of uh, belief or a conspiracy theory to think that the very entities and corporate lawyers that have consolidated hundreds of movie companies and distributors down into six entities are not the same mentality that wants to push a globalist agenda an agenda to consolidate the 160 or 80 nation states down to one huge nation. It's all consolidation. It's all collectivism. Or as C. Wright Mills put it, the power elite, the control group of the planet Earth, if you will. As related by media expert Ben Bagdakian, we've seen how hundreds of media companies were consolidated down to just 50. And then, by 2004, those 50 were further consolidated to just five. Today, as we've previously seen, we stand at six. If you go back about 100 years ago, the National Banking Association and others put out reports saying we need to buy up the media because it was diversified then, and it was anti-establishment, pro-constitution on average, very populist though. They said, we're going to buy this up and basically uh, get it to where there's no real investigative journalism going on. 
and where the establishment is given a free hand to do whatever they want, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's what the dinosaur media is. That's my name for the mainstream media. They're a group that lies incessantly. They're a group that spins. They're a group that is uh, engaged in repeating the press releases that they're given by select corporations and government. They're basically the propaganda core uh, for the globalists. Mainstream media, CNN in particular, does not care about the public outside of their indoctrination mission to eliminate borders and basically destroy the nuclear family. You have six major media corporations or conglomerates in this country today. Too much consolidation results in stealthification. And then the stealthification actually feeds back and allows for greater consolidation. Additionally, those of us that are privy to CNN's bullshit don't watch it anyway. And their product tends to be more or less uniform. Are political ideas uniform? No. Economic ideas? No. Social ideas? No. Where is the competition? If you don't have competition in the system, then by hypothesis you have monopolistic or oligopolistic situation. The mainstream media, if not actively imploding, is at a very minimum really worried, and they see the writing on the wall. Given the pathological obsession the collectivist has for consolidation, why would word processor crazy corporate attorneys not apply the same mentality to the consolidation of governments, even governments across the world? They seek to create uh, a stagnant system where no one can threaten their monopoly. Uh, the mainstream media is the... Uh, deceptive uh, propaganda arm of the mega corporations and governments that are monopoly men, that are social engineers seeking for a managed, controlled economy where uh, risk is made public. We have to pay for it, but profits are private to them. World government, the ultimate merger, is the epitome of the globalist agenda. And the success of such an agenda depends on the cooperation of world populations in something called free trade. Thus, America and every nation's population must be indoctrinated by the mainstream media into accepting so-called free trade, what Pat Buchanan calls the Trojan horse to world government. But as we've all seen, the so-called free trade foisted upon us by globalist bodies is really managed trade. And this managed trade has been endlessly promoted by the New York media to the point whereby it has now destroyed not only the U.S. manufacturing base, but much of the American middle class. We find that in the motion picture industry today, all of the subtle little signals and the messages that are built into the storylines supports the concept that collectivism is a good thing. And it's a very subtle thing, and I'm sure, you know, many people don't get these little messages and, and signals because they're not familiar with the concepts we're talking about. And so indirectly, their attitudes about their political uh, place in the world, whether collectivism is good or individualism is better, you know, what kind of a system do we really want to live under? There's, these concepts are, are being eroded or actually being uh, poisoned by the subtle messages come out of Hollywood. Karl Marx would be proud. Earlier, we covered cultural Marxism, the Frankfurt School's gift to Hollywood's executives and America's youth. Now let's take a look at corporate fascism and see how both of these brainwashing technologies are ultimately totalitarian.
and ultimately leading young and old down the road to serfdom. Um, an email address. I'm getting a call on the other line. Can you hold for one second? Sure. The term corporate fascism means the merging of corporate and state power, such that corporate power prevails. We saw fascism in Second World War when the state and the corporates merged. However, the state basically was the supreme power. Today's new corporate fascism, we could say the corporations basically dominate the state. And the way they do that is by literally purchasing the state. They buy up all the media and the advertising so that they can get their political representatives into power. They fund the campaigns of congressmen and they basically filter these people into the Congress to pass laws that are favorable to the corporations. So today we have a unique form of fascism known as corporate fascism. Recall that cultural Marxism means economic political Marxism translated into cultural terms. Again, both corporate fascism and cultural Marxism are totalitarian in nature and thus require big, if not unlimited, government. Whereas the U.S. Constitution calls for limited government. Both cultural Marxism and, and corporate fascism are totalitarian in nature because both worship the power of the state. Either the power of the state to force you to be a certain way, that's the cultural Marxist viewpoint, and the corporate fascist way is, well, to control your, your, your economic livelihood, to control what you can and can't do for, for a living, they want to control your, your choices. So both of them believe in big government, believe in transnational corporations, uh, believe in the economic power being taken out of the hands of the people, believe in unrestrained government for their own particular uses. Given this, corporate fascism requires the media conglomerates to be overly cooperative with the state, which always wants to expand. Yes, the globalists are hell-bent on using the mainstream media and its two ugly wings, the cultural Marxist-infested Hollywood studios and the corporate fascist-infested New York networks to reduce the United States to but a province in their one-world government. The largest, of course, would be the United Nations and a lot of other globalist organizations that we know of that exist, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and all these, they're all subsidiaries of the United Nations. Uh, what is their purpose? Their purpose is to take control of the planet. I lament the fact that many people in our country have not ever read the Constitution of the United States. But far fewer people have ever read the Charter of the United Nations. Article 25 of the Charter of the United Nations, very small, one sentence. It says, all members of the United Nations agree to accept and carry out the decisions of the Security Council. As a member of the United Nations, therefore, the United States has agreed that we will accept the decisions of the Security Council of the United Nations. Forget the Constitution. There's a subsidiary of the United Nations called NATO. North Atlantic Treaty Organization. How did we get into Iraq? Well, we got into Iraq because of a United Nations resolution. So globalism, no thank you. Uh, independence, yes. Recall, 
The Supreme Court found in the case of Burston versus Wilson that motion pictures are a significant medium for the communication of ideas, and these ideas can affect attitudes and behavior in a variety of ways. By this, the court implied that motion pictures are so powerful, they don't just influence individual behavior, they can influence all of society's behavior. The mainstream media facilitates the globalist program of disarming the people uh, by demonizing gun owners, by implying we're terrorists, by implying we're guilty for what bad people do with guns. Uh, and they basically push this unified front that you're bad because you believe in the Second Amendment that this country was founded on. 1776.